Hello, and welcome to the Seeking Health Podcast. I'm Josiah. And I'm Jessica. We were missionaries for seven years. Until we stepped back in 2019 to seek health and re-examine our beliefs. Right now, I'm a Christian, but not an evangelical. And I'm an agnostic and also very much not an evangelical. And we are deconstructing. And reconstructing together. together. <laughs> Listen to some of our key episodes, such as. Deconstructing together. Domestic abuse. I'm a survivor. The Cult of ATI, Part 1 and 2, and Dehumanized by Purity Culture. Join us on our journey as we seek health together. And with us today is Clint Haycock. He is the host of MindShift Podcast, a former pastor and Bible school teacher for over 20 years. And today, Clint is going to talk with us about what it was like to grow up in fundamentalism and... um, pursue that track, be successful in that track for a good long time. We were just talking before we turned the mics on that you lived my dream. I wanted to be the Bible school teacher. Uh, I wanted to be a full-time pastor. Um, You know, we were full-time missionaries, similar, but I, you know, I wanted to be that Bible school teacher and uh, we were blocked because I didn't believe in six-day creation and all the schools I want to teach at, that was a do or die issue, unfortunately. Um, Unfortunately. Or, yeah, I mean, in hindsight, Charlie dodged the bullet there. Yes. Um, Let's think about that for a minute. <laughs> they may have done you a favor. I mean, they yeah. did do you a favor, actually. Yeah, yeah. I, yes, I think did. so. We're still processing it. Yeah. Because it, it's not that far off <laughs> in yeah. our past. But um, it, it was a big part in leading us down this deconstruction path. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. Well, I was shocked at the amount of schools, especially in the in the states. Not so much here in the UK, but when I did my degree, I, did, I came over here to do a PhD. I live in the UK. We've been here about 15 years, just over 15 years now. And after I did my degree, I did a bunch of applications for Bibles, colleges, and seminaries in the states. And I was shocked, at, as you're saying, how many of them required a doctrinal to me to sign a doctrinal statement to, yeah. that I agreed with their positions, and they wouldn't. You couldn't even get shortlisted if you didn't sign that paper and you didn't agree. And there was a lot of applications I was qualified for on paper, but I, I would not commit to their positions. So yeah. I didn't even bother applying. I just said, yeah. forget it. Yeah. And they're hyper specific. It's pointless. It's and, not yeah, like, very, very specific. It's not like, oh, you believe in the Trinity and the creeds. It's like, no, no, no. This is what you believe about eschatology. This is what you believe about young earth creationism. This is what you believe about speaking in mm-hmm. tongues. This, you know, all the. Because we, we looked at Absolutely. pretty much all the Bible schools in Canada. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot. Um, and we moved back to our hometown and worked with a garbage, uh, not, with a cement truck company, <laughs> which actually uh, is beer freeing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Getting out of that system. Yeah. Well, I, I was just shocked at how many schools. Yeah. Like I say, I mean, I remember I applied to this one place I actually did get shortlisted in this country up in Scotland and they wanted me to say that I I believed in what's called the Lausanne Covenant. Have you ever heard of the Lausanne Covenant? No. I've never even heard, heard of, of this thing. <laughs> yeah. I, I had to look it up. I, what in the world is that? And it turns out it was this movement back in 1974 in Lausanne, Switzerland. And Billy Graham was kind of the head of the movement at the time. And it was a huge worldwide evangelistic push by all these Christians. And they signed this statement saying... We're going to commit to worldwide evangelism and we're repenting how sorry we are to God and all this. And this Bible college said, you have to be in agreement with that. 
or we're not going to shortlist you. And I thought, my God, what, what's going on here? This is unbelievable. Yeah. Wow. Yep. So it's a, it's a thing for sure. Yeah. yeah. So I'd love to back up with you and just start at the beginning. Like, what was it like as a young Clint um, growing up? What, what were the factors that formed and, and made you who you are as a young child and growing up in this? Well, I would say I was born into fundamentalist Christianity. That's kind of the first thing. I was born in a church outside of Seattle, Washington. I was born and raised there. My parents took me to church when I was literally a baby, probably a week or two old. And I was there from literally day one. And it's interesting because I've just been going around and around on this discussion with some people in our Facebook group about mental health and how does the church, does it contribute to mental health issues? I mean, negatively, I should say. And someone responded, well, I like you, I was raised in it. So I can't tell what's mental health issues Mm -hmm. from just my normal upbringing. And I developed things like religious scrupulosity. I had uh, rapture anxiety. I had religious trauma syndrome, still do. You know, hell-induced PTSD, anxiety, depression. These were all things that came out of my time in fundamentalist Christianity because I was exposed to all these things like watching that movie, A Thief in the Night. And I was terrified I was going to get left behind in the rapture. Mm -hmm. I must have prayed the sinner's prayer thousands and thousands and thousands of times nightly, basically, because I was afraid I was going to miss the rapture and end up in hell. You know, so that that's terribly traumatic to a young child. And so it it did cause mental health problems. It absolutely did. So that cannot be healthy. Well, it wasn't healthy at all. I I can say that for sure. And do you think that those flames were stoked intentionally? Like, do you think, do you feel like your parents and pastors intentionally created more pressure? I believe that they weren't, they weren't trying to traumatize us. I mean, if you just said to our pastor or my parents, Hey, are you trying to traumatize these young children? They would have said no, but they would have also said, I think in the same breath, we want, if they're, if they're afraid of going to hell and that means that they become a Christian, then that's all to the good. That's good. You should be afraid of going to hell. And if that means, you know, it's like fire insurance. Well, that's, that's better than not, not being a Christian. You know, mm-hmm. so they wouldn't have they wouldn't have apologized for showing that movie to a church full of young, young people. I mean, I was probably 10 or 11 years old when they showed that movie, A Thief yeah. in the Night. It was a Sunday night service to the whole entire church, children included. Yeah. And wow. nobody said, my gosh, should we, you think we should exclude the children from this? No, they wanted us in there because they needed us to be scared straight, too. Yeah. yeah. So it was very traumatic. Yeah. Yeah, I resonate with that. I've that was one of the first things that I let go was this and as a young child who was so terrified of, of how, of the rapture, not, not the rapture, but end time stuff. Like you're just yeah. taught to be terrified and the end coming. And that was myself reading at a certain point. I found the verse, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. And I was like, I'm not sure what's going on in the world, but this doesn't seem like power, love, and a sound mind. This sounds like insanity, basically. Fear and base insanity. Yeah. How is that loving God and all all that? I mean, that's what I tried to reconcile as a child. Because like I said, I was raised with the fear of hell. And it was the full deal. You know, it was eternal conscious torment in the flames of hell if you were to end up there. And that's someone said, I can't remember who it was, somebody on one of the podcasts. They said, if you think about it, 
for a Christian, for an evangelical, hell is the ultimate ace card. It's the ultimate trump card. You can't go anywhere from there. You know, that's the ultimate threat, isn't it? It really Mm -hmm. is. Eternal conscious torment in the flames of hell. There's no worse punishment than that. You know, so you tell a kid, hey, kid, you're nine, 10 years old. You're going to go to hell if you don't believe in Jesus. Well, that kid's going to fall on his or her knees, you know, and beg for forgiveness, which is what I did as Mm -hmm. a kid. Yeah. Well, it's the reason all those tracks are all based on hell. (laughs) Exactly. I read those chick tracks. My, my mom used to work in a Christian bookstore when I was a kid. Oh, you got they actually used to, yeah, they used to give away. I guess they didn't sell them. Maybe they sold them so people could give them away. But I remember you, that's where I came across the chick tract when I was a kid, which is another similar kind of thing, as you say, uh, absolutely terrifying, this yeah. sort of theological <laughs> worldview. It's all yeah. based on fear and terror and threats of hell and yeah. You know, God is recording everything that you you do, everything that you think. Yeah. It's all going to be on a TV screen in front of all the angels (laughs) later on. And I remember that as a kid thinking every every time I did something wrong was this is being recorded somewhere and someday it's going to be played on a giant screen with the whole world watching (laughs) all my shameful acts and all my terrible thoughts and deeds that I'm thinking I'm doing in secret. God is actually watching and recording them. Yeah. I mean, that again, that's that's what that's what leads to things like the religious scrupulosity. It's a form of OCD. Basically, it's like where you're you're policing oh, every see. single thought, even. Mm-hmm. And that is very, very, very unhealthy. It's incredibly unhealthy for anybody, let alone a Christian. I just heard that term yesterday and I was reading about it and I was like, oh my goodness, that's crazy. Yep, it's like a that. thing. Yeah, it is totally. It really is. Yeah. It's really helpful yeah, to come across terms like that. Um, it's just really helpful mm-hmm. <laughs> in working. It is through. well when you can. It gives you the language to be able to point to what the exact things that happened to us. Yeah, which is why I think it was probably two, maybe two and a half years ago when I started getting, I started researching cult psychology. And yeah. the lights were just coming on left, right, and center. When I began to realize that a, I was raised in a cult. The Bill Gothard, the ATI stuff you were okay. talking about. And then B, that I had to deal with all of the stuff that happened to me. And uh, like you said, I could start pointing to specific things and say, that happened to me, that happened to me. And I've become this type of person as a result of those experiences. And then at least it gives you a direction for therapy and guidance and more research and whatever you need to do to educate yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to hear more about the young Clint and I like, where were you really fully yourself? Like where were you maybe in nature or like, (laughs) like where were the times when you thought, well, that was the real Clint that was having a good time that was at peace with himself. You know, it's hard to say because I think there's a lot of, there's so much anxiety around everything you do and say and think that, what ends up happening, I think, and this is what happened to me, is that everything I did, I had to second guess it. Yeah. So even if I was having fun, let's say playing sports, I love playing soccer. You know, I love playing baseball, basketball. Those were my main sports growing up. And then I got into American football later on. But, you know, I was always second guessing. Am I having too much fun? Am I glorifying yeah. God? Is this, am I, am I building relationships with my teammates so I can preach the gospel to them? You can't just abandon yourself and have fun. There's always got to be a hidden agenda. You got to invite your friends from the team to, to church with you. 
you know, there's this pressure all the time. And so it's, it's very difficult to just quote, be yourself as you're yeah, saying, because you have to overthink everything and yeah. you're constantly feeling anxiety because you're not inviting your friends to church or youth yeah. group or summer camp or whatever it is. And it's, it just, it's like a buzzkill. It just sucks all the fun out of everything. Mm-hmm. It does relate to that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, we so, so desperately can relate to that. <laughs> you know, even, even when I came to this country, we were really deconstructing, but like I say, I played American football for about eight seasons for a team here in Chester in England. And when it started out, I was still driven by that sense that the reason I'm playing American football, yes, I love the sport. Yes, I love to play, but I'm building relationships with my non-Christian teammates for the goal of witnessing to them for the goal of building relationships to preach the gospel. So it was still a missional endeavor. It couldn't just be that I was having fun and that I enjoyed the sport and I enjoyed being on a team. It had to be some spiritual missional aspect. Yeah. And so am I right in guessing that the times when you felt most at peace with yourself were times when you were, quote unquote, having good devotions or having a good worship experience or somehow you felt like God was happy with you. So then you could be at peace with yourself or you had accomplished something spiritually. So you felt like you could. Am I right in in guessing that? Well, that's the aim, isn't it? And even then, though. I think in those moments of true quote unquote worship, you're still, in my mind, I'm still questioning my authenticity. I can remember even as a pastor, one of the big things about being a pastor is that you have this tremendous sense of pressure all the time because they put you up on a pedestal. And so even the people in the church view you as this super spiritual person that has all the answers because you've been to Bible college, seminary, you've studied the Greek and the Hebrew or whatever you've done. And they put you up on this pedestal. So you've got to be this perfect spiritual Christian. But even then we'd go to these pastors conferences and I can remember feeling a real sense of inadequacy, like, okay, you know, God doesn't love me enough, even though I'm doing all the things that I thought I was supposed to do as a leader, as a pastor, as a teacher, I'm still questioning and doubting my own sense of authenticity, even then in those positions. So it can be very crippling. I think emotionally. Yeah. Especially if you're, if you're a very introspective person like I am. So I probably do tend to overthink everything, you know? So yeah, I can remember sitting in those pastors conferences and you try not to compare yourself to the other people in there, but you're talking about how big your church is and how many, how many numbers you have. And yeah, you know, it's, it's, it turns out to be a competition and it just, it can be very, very debilitating. I think yeah. it's a very, it's a very traumatic sort of experience. Yeah, it feels like this this strange thing where everybody feels inadequate because they're comparing themselves to the person on the top. And exactly. then the person on the top feels inadequate because they feel the need to put on a facade because yep. that's what you have you literally have to do or else you can't keep your job. If you're really honest about what's going on in your life, even if it's just even if it's nothing exciting, if you don't put on a facade and inflate the numbers a little bit, like people are going to say you're not successful and replace you with somebody else that can play the game better than you. And so everybody's comparing Absolutely. themselves and feeling inadequate compared to you when it's like, look, guys, like I'm not doing it. I knew the truth. <laughs> I'm just an ordinary guy. I know. We're all just ordinary. Nobody can admit it. Nobody can admit it. Yeah. Nope. You can't admit it. Well, and I recall that because 
on the one hand, I remember having these meetings with our elders when I was a pastor, and they would say things like, we really value transparency in our leaders. You know, we want you to be transparent, be open and honest. And they always say that, don't they? That we want our pastors, we want our leaders to tell the truth and be honest and open about their struggles. Well, one time I did that, I admitted in a sermon that I had gotten upset with a guy from this from our church, and I went off on him. And he, he deserved it, though. That's the thing. He was completely out of line. But I kind of yelled at him. But he ended up quitting the church. Him and his family left the church. And But I went over to his house, and I asked for his forgiveness. We reconciled. He ended up not coming back to the church. But I, I gave this story in a sermon one time. That ended up getting used against me later. They said, you're an agent. You've got a you've got an anger problem. Look what you did to this guy. We can't trust you anymore as a pastor. <laughs> I'm like, mm-hmm. guys what more do you want? I mean, I did the right thing. Eventually I went over and apologized and we, we made it right. And that was the point of the whole story was, yes, I made a mistake, but I didn't just leave it there. I I went and apologized and we, I asked for his forgiveness and isn't that what you're supposed to do? You know, Mm -hmm. I couldn't make a mistake. I'm an angry person with a temper problem, (laughs) you know, so it's a no win. Yeah. And people don't, like we were, we were vulnerable about burnout halfway through our missions. And we talked about it after the fact. And while, when we had kind of tied things up a little bit and people didn't mind, people actually responded really well to that. It was kind of encouraging, like, Oh, wow. Like you've had this journey with mental health and there was a lot of support. Uh, There was a lot of financial support as well, which was great. Like we were, we finally had support, but the day-to-day stuff, it was like, okay, well, that happened. You tied it all up with a bow and there's an explanation. But day to day, we still want you to be awesome, you know? <laughs> yeah. There's such a need to have a story and, and uh, like to shine. Um, and mm-hmm. if it's okay if you're flawed, as long as you can weave that into how you're currently awesome. Mm-hmm. It's, such a, it's such a bizarre system. The more I think about it, you know, that as a pastor as a teacher as a missionary whatever like you say you can't actually afford to be authentic because that's not what the people want you know i can remember going on missions trips we went to mexico we went to africa we came back and we showed these movies of these amazing evangelistic revivals that we had in nairobi and that's what the people wanted to see that's what they were giving money to is all these little kids coming forward and getting saved in the slums of nairobi and yet the truth was the whole mission strip was a complete failure. We didn't say, we didn't talk about that part that the church we built a year later was completely demolished and all the pieces had been stolen by the locals because there was no money to support it. You know, so all the money we raised was a complete and utter failure. And all those people that came forward, they didn't end up being plugged into a church. They just came forward because we were entertaining. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So who knows what happened to all those complete thousands of people that came forward but it looked good on camera, man. People streaming forward in these big open air slums of Nabi. It looked amazing, but we didn't tell the backstory, you know, behind it either. Yeah. And then probably the next mission trips feels inadequate because we didn't have the great video of the, you know, everybody's comparing themselves to something that's not even true. Exactly. And yet these Americans want to throw money at stuff like that because it looks so amazing we're helping to spread the gospel, you know, but it didn't really help the people in Nairobi at all. It didn't help that guy that was a pastor of that church. You know, we would have been far better giving him the money to support his family because he couldn't afford to keep the church going. We built about half the building and then we left. And about a week later, 
you know, he, he left the town too because he, he couldn't find a job. So the church sat there for a few months and all the locals were like, well, it's abandoned. I guess we got free building materials. I don't blame them one bit. They took everything that we left behind. You yeah. know, so in a weird way, maybe we did, we did help the locals, but it wasn't our design. They yeah. went back a year later and that church building was physically gone. There was nothing left but the concrete slab, you know, yeah. what a complete waste of money for, from that point of view anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm wondering if you could kind of walk us through the like the basic highlights of your life. Like, when did you become a pastor? Why did you become a pastor? And then later on, talk about how that how you stepped out of that. Well, it's funny because I didn't really intend on being a pastor. I went to Bible college and the choices I had in terms of majors, none of them seemed to fit except for the pastoral track. I didn't want to be a musician, even though I was a, I'm a drummer, but I didn't want to be a worship leader. I didn't want to be a Greek scholar. I didn't want to be a missionary. No, no offense to missionaries, but they said, well, you can do the pastoral major. So I said, okay, well, I guess that's what I'm doing. And then I went on to seminary. Well, while I was in seminary, this opportunity came up to play drums at this church where a bunch of my friends from uh, Bible college were attending as well. So I just jumped in there playing drums on the worship band. And ended up staying there, became a, I I taught, you know, Bible studies. Then I became an elder. Then I became the head elder. Then I became the pastor. You know, so over the course of 12 years, I just got kind of stuck into it. I never intended to stay there for 12 years, but I thought I was committed to this church by that point. I thought, well, let's need to turn this thing around and help it to grow. It was very dysfunctional and unhealthy, you know, so I was really committed to helping it grow. Mm Mm-hmm. And at a, at a certain point, you started to feel like it wasn't working for you or, or you were like, how did you start to feel dissatisfied with um, what was going on? Oh, man, I was dissatisfied almost all the time, mostly because, well, we found out, as I say, the church was very, very dysfunctional and un- unhealthy. They had a lot of issues from things that had happened in the past that had never been dealt with by the previous leadership lots of church abuses of Mm. people in the church hurting other people. And we began to uncover all this stuff. Well, people did not want to deal with that because a lot of the people that had done the hurting were still there. And so when we started confronting some of that stuff, man, this was what we thought was going to turn the church around was dealing with all the emotional sludge that was in, you know, still dragging around the congregation that did not end well, <laughs> even though people said they wanted to deal with it and get healthy. When it started coming to light, they got really upset and angry and started blaming us, the leaders, for causing more problems. In the end, that church ended up closing down. And then off the back of that, we planted another church out of kind of the remnants of what was left. You know, So it was a strange journey in the end. We never intended to shut the church down. We were trying to turn it around and help it get healthy again. At what point did you become a Bible school teacher? Well, I was always heading toward this kind of academic track. Like I said, I never intended to be a pastor. I just got stuck into this church for far too long. That's what got me out in the end. I was burning out like you guys did in missions work. I burned out as a pastor and I thought, okay, I need a major, major life change and it was at that point that I decided, okay, I need to go on and do a PhD because that's the best possibility to get into teaching at a Bible college or seminary level. 
but we wanted a huge life change. So we ended up coming over here to the UK. And nice. then uh, once We've I finished my PhD, that. yeah, I got my degree a few years back and ended up getting a job at a Bible college. And so I was there for about seven or eight years. And that's how I ended up teaching at this place in uh, Liverpool and Leeds. I used to travel every week okay. to these various centers and teach. Hmm. And was that, was that life-giving for you for at least for a season to be able to be in a position of teaching and leadership? And you had mentioned kind of this desire to re bring reform and change. Uh, so being a Bible school mm -hmm. teacher, you're able, I imagine, to have those classes and, and be able to kind of reform and change things from that. That's been my vision forever is kind of to bring change and to bring the church into the next gen, next, <laughs> next millennia, mm -hmm. hopefully next season, um, whatever you call it. Yeah. yeah. Like did that, did that work for you for a season? Yes. And no, in, in a sense, I had a, a lot of amazing discussions with students. We used to have great chats and classes about stuff. And my view was kind of like what you're saying I was sort of in the last phases of my, at that time, I guess I would say more progressive Christianity because I'd been reading stuff by guys like Brian McLaren, Rob Bell, Brian, Brian, no, um, Donald Miller. You know, I've been reading progressive Christians for the last few years. I got into Richard Rohr, which was really amazing. Um, you know, so I was really deconstructing my own sort of fundamentalist background. And I thought, well, being a pastor for so long and being in church leadership, I can speak with some you know, authority on what's, what it's like to be in the, in the ministry to these men and women that are coming up in Bible college, learning how to be pastors and leaders and missionaries and all the rest of it. But the problem was, is the structure of the college, they, they have these regional centers that they operate all around the country. They're based out of Birmingham, which is kind of in the middle of the country. And they have everyone in all the centers all have to teach off the same set of notes. So I wasn't free to really bring in my own material. I had to use their stuff. And that was really, really difficult because I felt really restricted by that. And so I had, we all were singing off the same hymn sheet, basically. So that became an increasing frustration for me because I was really, you know, stuck in this sort of rut. Yeah. That's something that we resonate with as well. I've got a podcast a few back uh, called I Brainwashed Myself about how you know, I've been a free thinker. I've built myself as a free thinker. I've tried to be a free thinker, but if you think certain thoughts, then you can't sign that doctrinal statement and then you don't have a job anymore. And so That's right. as much as I was a free thinker, there were certain things that I would just consciously say, I don't know. I haven't researched it yet. Or, you know, I would yeah. just, you know, I, okay, this is what I believe but I wouldn't explore it more because I knew that if I started exploring it more, I probably wouldn't believe that anymore. And then all of a sudden I'd be something else and having that control. And really it, I mean, at a certain point it became about a paycheck, not that we were making an, an exorbitant amount, but at least to pay yeah. the mortgage, right? Like it, when you're in ministry, you become pigeonholed and this is what we do. Absolutely. I mean, it's not like I can switch over and become an architect or something. Mm. Um, so yeah, and that's I, a real I, problem. What's that? Yeah, a lot of a lot. I was gonna say it's a real problem because I know a lot of pastors, or I should say, ex-pastors, who've gotten out of the ministry. They've deconstructed, but they have no actual marketable job skills in the real world. They've got 12, 15, 20 years as a pastor, a church leader, worship leader, whatever. It doesn't translate into getting a real job at UPS or wherever. Yeah, it doesn't work. Yeah. So you end up, yeah, like you say, you just suppress. A friend of mine was told by some of his 
seminary professors when he was entertaining doubts years ago they said look just keep just keep doing the gig keep your doubts to yourself yeah. you're getting a good paycheck you're on a good salary here yeah. just keep it quiet just go through the motions man and you know don't speak up i mean what kind of advice is that but you're, you're risking losing your livelihood yeah well that is something that's that a horrible place to be I, yeah like and as as we were leaving like we really felt like god called us out of ministry and we felt that call stronger than the call to come into ministry. It was a call to authenticity. It was a call to sacrifice. Right. It was a call to health. It was a call towards all things good. And like one of the, the strongest mentors in the mission kept reminding me, like, you know, when you leave, you won't have your benefits anymore. When you leave, you're going to have to pay more taxes. You know, when you leave, you know, you're making this amount of money, you likely won't make that. Yeah. Out. You know, it was really a struggle for me because it was true. It's like, what am I going to do now? Fortunately, I had a truck driving license mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm making decent money in my gold mining town, but it for like, there was no promise of that. When we left, we had no job lined up. Yeah. Like we, yeah. But just, that was a call to leave ministry for me. It was just, I'm done coasting. I need to take yeah. charge of my life. I'm having debilitating anxiety over living on support and no promise of future with that. Um, I just like, this is not working. <laughs> yeah. For me, that's mm -hmm. why I wanted to leave. <laughs> it's like, I need some security Absolutely. in my life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but there's I no guarantees there because we've got some very good friends that now live up in Calgary, but they lived in Birmingham for about five and a half years and they were missionaries. She's from Canada. He's from the States. And they were part of a certain organization, which I won't, I won't name, <laughs> but it was a church organization that was sponsoring them. And when it came time to renew their visas, they wanted to stay in this country. The organization said, no, we want you back in Canada. And they said, well, we want to stay in the UK. And if we could just stay a little bit longer, we could apply for indefinite leave to remain because we want to stay in this country. This is, this is home now. Anyway, the long story was the organization pulled the rug out from underneath them and they couldn't stay in this country. And they had no choice but to move back to Canada. And they were very upset and, you know, very devastated by this thing. And it was through no fault of their own. They had no control of, over what this organization was going to do because they can pull all the strings. Yeah. And that was, that's what they've had to do. And yeah. probably told not to talk, tell their side of the story and keep smiling and keep the party line and keep the newsletters yeah. coming. And yeah, absolutely. Well, they, they ended up leaving that organization over that they're in, in, I should say they're in the process of deconstructing. That's putting it mildly, but yeah, it's, it was a terrible thing. I remember going down to Birmingham it was almost two years ago now for their farewell party. And it was just, it was a bittersweet thing really, really because we were desperate to want them to stay here in this country and they wanted to stay, but their mission organization, the church organization wasn't having it. Mm -hmm. And so they had to leave. So they had no control over their own future. That, that's a crazy, and just because they were in, in, beholden to a church organization. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't want to ever get in a position where somebody else is telling me what I can and can't do with my life. Yeah. That, you know, I can live where I can't live. That That's, I can't imagine that, yeah. but that's what they've gone through. Yeah. Yeah. We had something similar, like when we were questioning some things a few years back and we were told, by a Christian counselor to just ask your mentors to pray about it and to tell you what to do. So we did. And, you know, we look back and we've been thinking about it, talking about it. And it's like, you know, we knew deep down what we needed to do. Um, 
but we followed the Christian advice and we did that and they told us what to do and we stuck it out another four years in a place that wasn't right for us um, and mental health went down a lot during that time I was not mm -hmm. we knew we knew but we didn't know to listen to ourselves um, so yeah our leaving missions was just the first step towards listening to ourselves and taking charge of our life um, instead mm -hmm. of being dictated what to do um, absolutely and here we are <laughs> here you are i'd actually say it's stronger than that like yeah. every every locate every decision of moving in missions was bucking against people that just want to dictate what to do and where to go and it was like mm -hmm. we're going to go to malawi we had talked about that it made sense but then we thought more about it and we said you know what it'd be great to learn french because she already knows french it would make sense i would love to have that language in my arsenal well, hold on a second. We already decided this and we had such pushback that we just pushed and pushed. And then we're like, just send us somewhere French. There was a leadership change. And then they're like, fine, let's just go here. And it wasn't a good fit because other things like we needed to have like, okay, this is our components. We want to learn French, but now you need to tell us because you know the mission field, like where would we fit? And they just dumped mm -hmm. us somewhere where there wasn't a need for me on the ground. So that was a real frustration. We did all this sacrifice for me to replace an African teacher in a Bible school. And I was like, why am I replacing an African teacher? <laughs> you know, like there's not a, a crushing need for us here. And like, she almost died. And it's like, why, you know, yeah, what's like, this about? You're going to send me over here. Man. Anyway. So, and then when we came back, it was like, well, so-and-so wanted me here and we had to fight tooth and nail to not go to the big city downtown we wanted to go to this other place that was off in the country that we felt like we had a, a click and a connection. It was like constantly this fight with somebody in leadership that felt like they could just move people around like pawns and mm -hmm. us being like, can we have a conversation here? Like, this is like, we're, we're a little bit involved in this thing called my life. <laughs> could yeah, I have our life? We got a family and everything. Yeah, exactly. Well, we took charge of that by leaving missions <laughs> that's kind of what we had to do that's one way to do it you have to do what you have to do for your own mental health as you say your own sanity i yeah, can't yeah. even imagine yeah yeah hmm. so i've got some questions about oh, oh no actually before um what was the journey like as you were kind of leaving fundamentalism leaving evangelicalism or, or however you describe that deconstruction deconstructing yeah <laughs> so you mentioned you were deconstructing but you were still in it and you probably felt like you had yeah. a voice and you had an ability to move the things forward when did that stop working for you and and what did you do as a next step well it's weird because i, I was just resonating with what you were saying a minute ago about your authentic self you know tries to get out and assert itself i can see now my whole journey problem my whole life really my, I have this bent. I mean, I'm, I'm just wired to be a teacher. I can't help it. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's who I am. I love to learn new things and I like to explain it to other people, yep. you know, so that's why I love teaching. So even at the Bible college, all those years when I was unhappy with certain things, I loved the fact that I was still teaching. Yeah. You know, I was still in front of, of students and having really interesting discussions. But even as a young guy growing up, you know, going through all those traumatic things that I went through, I think now, the reason I wanted to become a pastor and a Bible college teacher was to help other people avoid those things that I experienced myself, yes. the doubts and the fears and the traumas and everything else. And even now that I've walked away from the whole thing, I'm still weirdly doing that same kind of thing. For yeah. lack of a better word, I'm still in quote unquote ministry weirdly yeah. because I'm, I've, my trajectory hasn't changed 
authentically, I don't feel at all. It's just that I'm no longer spouting the party line and trying to get people to believe in God. I'm helping people with religious trauma syndrome and educating people on cults and dominion theology and the Christian right and, and everything else. That's so that's, I'm still doing the same kind of thing in a strange way, you know? So I'm, I'm feel like I'm being authentic now because this is who I actually am. Mm-hmm. So what, what did that look like on the ground? Like at, at what point did you hand in your resignation or like, and like, where did you do for a job? Cause you were employed in the ministry. How did that work for you? I was, I was very fortunate in the sense that, well, like I said, the church closed when I was a pastor. Okay. So that decision was kind of made for us, even though we were part of that decision and we knew we were already transitioning to come over here to, for me to go to school, to, to university. So when we got over here, that's what we did. I just worked odd job. My wife worked full time. We just supported ourselves the best we could till I finished. So I've always had, I've always had a background in construction. Fortunately okay. for me, I went to college when I was just out of the Navy back in 86 to 88 on the GI bill. So I've always had a background in the building trades, which is very, very fortunate because I've always worked in the trades in one capacity or another. So when I got over here, even though I was working at the Bible college, it was only part time. I wasn't making that much money. I was making probably half of what I needed to make every month. So even though I was teaching three, two or three days a week, I was also doing side jobs two or three days a week. So I've always worked in the trade. So what happened was I ended up getting made redundant, which is what they say over here. I, I got laid off. Basically, the Bible college ran out of money. They ran themselves into huge debt. So I just transitioned into full time building work. Okay. And then a couple of years later, I got a job. So now I'm teaching at a college over here in England. I teach, you know, construction, carpentry, building skills, maintenance skills to military veterans. That's what I do for a living. So again, I'm still teaching, but I'm teaching real life skills of, you know, in the building trades. And I, re I really absolutely love it because I, I know I'm making a difference in these men and women's lives that come through my courses. That's yeah. great. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm hoping at some point we can find, I can find something where I can, cause I love to teach and, and this is my yeah. zone is like, authentic authenticity and thinking deeply about the deep questions of life and being compassionate and being a holistic person. The problem is that if you follow those things too far, then you're going to leave evangelicalism, <laughs> but I still yep. want to do this. And that, and especially with young people coming up, like my, my childhood and my teenage years was absolute hell on earth. Like it was terrible. And part of that was that I now realize, like, well, I was raised by people who were fairly narcissistic and who had real mental health issues. And basically my home was fairly abusive. And then you add in fundamentalism and it's like, well, it wasn't good. I would love to have a role where I can help people like younger me navigate that. And so that's what Bible school was going to be for me. But maybe this podcast can also, it, we have had a lot of good responses from this podcast. People saying like, yeah, that somehow it's helping. Yeah. And that's, that's why I started my podcast. Originally it was called a different name. It was called the preachers forum podcast. And that was what it was my last gasp to try and get sort of to, to reform the church from within. I was just on the last legs of leaving the Bible college and all that. And I thought, okay, I'm going to give this one last go. And so a lot of the stuff I was talking about was progressive Christian topics and stuff. It's funny because now 
I've still got my original episodes on my website and people still have gone back and listened to the first season, which was, I don't know, over four years ago now. And I thought, I'm just going to leave those there because over the course of the three or four years that I did it, I was deconstructing sort of live, you know, on air as it were. And that's, that's I, I, I resonate with what you're saying, Josiah, because that's really what I see myself doing as well. Weirdly, I'm still in pastoral ministry, yeah. but I'm not beholden to any church. I'm not a Christian. Yeah. No way. <laughs> never going back. Yeah. But it's never, all about helping people. You know, that's the thing. That's always what it's been about. Yeah. And the things mm-hmm. that, that became toxic were having somebody in authority, you being in authority weirdly over other people having money involved in this where now I can't be authentic because I have to make people believe a lie about myself. Those are the things that, and then doctrines that you absolutely have to agree with or else supposedly you're going to hell or other people are going to hell as though Mm -hmm. God is up there. Like, 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 uh, like the worst seminary professor in the world. It's like, yeah, you, you don't believe the right thing. So (laughs) you go to hell. Like, um, yeah, well, and that's the biggest thing I think I would point to from my own mental health perspective aside from dealing with religious trauma syndrome and all the crap from my past that I feel like the person I am now is 100% completely authentic. Like you said, what you say, what you see is what you get. I mean, for a long time, you know, I loved getting tattoos. Well, that's one of my biggest things I love, but I never, ever got any tattoos below my, my kind of, you know, elbow. Uh, Cause I always wanted to cover it up, you know, yeah. and a few years ago, I'm like, this, what am I doing? What, why? You know, I don't care anymore. I'm never going to be a pastor again. I'm never going to be a Bible college again. You know, so it's just more ink and more ink. And that's like, this is who I am. I can be exactly who I want. If you don't like me, then don't be my friend. It's mm-hmm. just that simple. I'm not going to go cry about it. You know, that's just what it is, man. What you see is what you get. Yeah. That's great. That's awesome. It's refreshing. Yeah. That's what I seek for. <laughs> Yeah. yeah yeah it is and it's it's your own mental health like i say you're not sitting there overthinking everything well why am i doing this is this okay is god going to be offended am i am i not telling enough people about jesus constantly worried about not being missional enough not being evangelistic enough i can remember i've told this story many times but you know flying on the airplane every time i go on a trip somewhere i'd have to carry my biggest bible you know yeah. said i'd sit in the seat and hope that the person next to me would notice that I was reading the Bible and that would start up a conversation and I would lead them yeah. to Christ. And I never did, even though I carried that Bible on thousands of plane trips, you know, never worked. And I was so upset and devastated at the end of the trip. Cause I hadn't led that person to Christ. You know, mm. I just can't imagine. You can't even go on a plane trip on, on vacation without having that extra added fear, anxiety, worry that you've disappointed God. And that yeah. person's now going to go to hell. And that was your only chance. And, it's just nuts. And I'm now I'm thinking if I was the person sitting next to me and the, this guy sits down and opens up this giant Bible, they're probably thinking, Oh my God, (laughs) here we go. Some crazy Christian nut is going to try to, you know, shove the Bible down my throat. Avoid eye contact. (laughs) Exactly. It's like, Oh my God, what have I done? You know? Yeah. Uh, It's so unhealthy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So you've but got, that's how, mind. you know, that's how I thought. Yeah. You've got the mind shift podcast and you've talked about having this mm-hmm. basically ministry. What are kind of one or two of the key things that come up over and over as far as helping people like find authenticity and find health as they come out of evangelicalism? I would say what we talked about a little bit ago, religious trauma syndrome. 
is one of the big ones. And I've done, I don't know, five or six or seven episodes with therapists and specialists who deal with RTS. And that's been one of the biggest ones. In fact, it sounds like we have a mutual friend because the one with Rebecca Drumsta just dropped the other week, a few weeks ago. And, you know, we talked about RTS and her story. Again, very similar to mine growing up in a fundamentalist Bible cult sort of background and how you get out of that on the back end. And I've heard, I've heard just a, a lot of responses from people who've listened to those episodes. And that's been hugely helpful for me because I'm like, okay, this is the stuff I'm working through too. So it, it does have a sort of a resonance there. Yeah. Um, and that's really, really important. Th- those are the ones that stand out to me the most as well. I mean, none yeah. were podcasting through our journey and the last three months and that's where I'm at religious trauma syndrome I mean we Mm -hmm. it's a very important like we talked about terms earlier how it helps to figure out what's Mm -hmm. going on having a a word to to label things um that's very helpful for me um I mean a while back we went out to a restaurant with some friends and talked about church and I had a migraine for 24 hours um just religious trauma syndrome is real yeah (laughs) yeah it's a thing it's intense no doubt about it it really is intense and like you say having the language that is i cannot overstate how important that is like you just said once you can say ah that that exact thing has a name and that's what happened to me Mm -hmm. now i can start working through it because i know how to put a name to it yeah i would say also aside from the rts stuff when I did a bunch of episodes on the cults, uh, this is when the lights really came on for me. I did an episode with a guy named Chris Shelton, who has a podcast called the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. And Chris is an ex-Scientologist. And Mm. we were supposed to be talking about Scientology because I was interested in the cults and how they worked. And he was an ex-Scientologist of 17 or 18 years and all the rest of it. But the more we talked, the more we realized that our stories were very, very similar. Yeah. And I said to Chris, I'm like, no, wait a minute. This can't be right. Yeah. I'm an ex-evangelical. You're an ex-Scientologist. How come we're having such similar yeah. experiences, yeah. both in religion? And we started realizing that there's a tremendous amount of overlap between the world of the cults and the world of you know, religion, evangelicalism. Yeah, it's It's well, been a huge eye-opening thing. To, again, to be able to name those things. That's when I started studying cult psychology, cult tactics, because I realized that was my own story. Yeah. yeah, it's hard to accept that. <laughs> yeah, but you have to helpful. admit that's yeah. the first thing that you were raised in a cult. Once you admit that to yourself, and I think Rebecca mentioned this the other day, she said the first thing is you admit that you were raised in a cult. Once you can really admit that to yourself, then you go, okay, what does that mean? That means now I got to go back and figure out what they did to me and how, how can I start getting help to work through that? I yeah. might need therapy. I might need counseling. I might need to read some books or some fantastic resources out there. You start on that journey. And that's for a lot of people, that's where it goes. You pick up a book like Leaving the Fold by Marlene Winnell or Take Back Your Life by Yanya Lalich. You know, these are some fantastic resources that help put the pieces back together. Yeah. 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 We were talking to someone who left the Mormon church a a couple of weeks ago and it was the same thing as when you talked about the ex-scientologist mm-hmm. was like connected so mm-hmm. much with his story and his leaving the mormon church yeah. it was like it was sort of a bit of a light bulb moment kind of a weird moment in my head because it's like they're at the cult but our story is almost the same mm-hmm. exactly <laughs> 
It shouldn't be, especially no. as an ex-evangelical. Because I remember, you know, looking at the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses and saying, oh, these guys are cults, man. Yes. We're not a cult, though. No, no absolutely not. <laughs> but then when I read um, Robert Lifton's book, uh, Cult Psychology and the Thought Reform and the, I can't remember the name of the book. I'm spacing out right now, but it's Dr. Robert J. Lifton's book, Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism, I think is what it is. That was a huge eye-opening thing because he was the first guy who really understood and studied how brainwashing worked in hmm. communist China. And that's where a lot of this cult psychology stuff came from is that original book. Hmm. And when I read that book, I was like, my God, this is describing my experience, hmm. but I have nothing in common with a, a prisoner of war from the Korean war, but yet yeah. we did, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, we absolutely did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Clint, it's been really interesting to hear your story and really resonate. Like we have so much overlap and, and things that are very similar. Uh, before we wrap up, are there things that you want to tell us about what's happening, exciting things in the MindShift podcast universe? <laughs> yes, I've got some really exciting stuff that I'm going to be working on this next year. Or I should say this year now is 2021. Oh. I've got a new series coming out. It's called Profiles of the Christian Right. And I've decided what Whoa. I'm going to do is I'm going to start profiling individual people, like okay. key leaders in the Christian right, dominion theology, people that were heavily involved in the Trump administration and mm. other organizations. Mm. And I've already lined up some interviews already. I've already done a couple. I did one about Doug Wilson. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he's yeah. a very interesting kind of a cult-like leader out of Moscow, yeah. Idaho. So I've done an episode on that. The other thing I'm doing is every month, Peter Montgomery and I, he's from the Right Wing Watch. We are going to do a YouTube video on my YouTube channel. And we're going to, each of us is going to bring a story of the, like a new development in the Christian mm. right. And we're going to talk about that. We did one already in December talking about the Jericho March that they held in Washington, yeah. D.C. Mm. And that was absolutely fascinating. We broke that down and mm -hmm. analyzed it. So we're going to be doing that. And I'm going to try and talk with other people as well. So I'm super excited about this new series of stuff that's coming this this new year i guess it is yeah. now isn't it sounds yeah. great yeah mm -hmm. but we love your podcast yeah um, we do really appreciating the work that you're doing mm -hmm. thank you so much and we're gonna have you guys on on mind shift as well aren't we so yeah, we're gonna we're gonna return the favor at some point here in january <laughs> i think maybe yeah sounds good so i'm looking forward to having another conversation now that we finally met yes yeah, yeah this is great yeah. thank you so much for joining us we really appreciate it yeah yeah, I've absolutely enjoyed talking to you too. Well, have a good day. Hi. We usually Thank say you God so much. bless, but how do how do you finish a conversation as non as have a good day? <laughs> okay, have a great day. Have a happy yes. new year. Happy All right. new year. Happy new year. Bye.